Hello and welcome to the Friday, March 11th, 2022 edition of On Iowa Politics. Support provided by New Pioneer Co-op, celebrating 50 years as Eastern Iowa source for locally and responsibly sourced groceries with stores in Iowa City, Coralville, and Cedar Rapids, and online through Co-op Cart at newpi.coop. This week, Reynolds makes it official, filing season, midpoint of the legislative session, and support your local constitutional sheriff. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Jared. Top of the morning to you. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. Aaron Murphy, State House Bureau Chief for the Gazette. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. And Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. First up, Reynolds makes it official. Governor Kim Reynolds finally answered the question, will she or won't she run for re-election, with an announcement Wednesday evening that yes, indeed, she is running for a second full term. Compared to her predecessor, former Governor Terry Branstad, Reynolds is just getting started. She'll need to serve for nearly another 18 years to top his record of 8,169 days in office. <laughs> Aaron, I joke when I say there was some suspense about whether Reynolds was running. And from your story on the announcement, it sounds like she stuck to her script that she's been using for the past year and longer. Did you hear anything new about a vision for Iowa? Uh, I wouldn't say no, I, I didn't hear anything new. Although I will say that just now, I think you uh, gave a lot of Iowa Democrats a, a heart attack or, or put them into the fetal position at the a thought of uh, Kim Reynolds being governor for 18 more years. I'm, I'm imagining the <laughs> Iowa Democratic <laughs> reaction to that idea out there. Um, now, yeah, it was, I'll tell you, as, as far as uh, campaign kickoff announcements go, it was pretty... Um, uh, I don't know, understated maybe be the right word. I mean, it was really brief. Weren't any real big guest speakers. You know, she was introduced by Adam Gregg. She talked for about 15 minutes and and that was it. Uh, you know, uh, glad handed the folks who come out and, and, and that was it. Um, but I guess that's what you get when you, um, you know, you hold an event that's <laughs> announcing something that everybody in the world has known is coming for, um, at least since for five months since we thought she was going to do it the last time at the Harvest Festival in, in September, um, and for whatever reason not to not to do it there. Um, so, uh, but no, I mean it was it was mostly the same stuff uh, we've heard about. Um, you know, talking about the what she considers her record of accomplishments um, that uh, over her past uh, six years as governor, um, and then uh, talking about a lot of the same. Uh, issues that she has uh, been lately. So, so uh, if if there's something new coming on the stump speech, uh, she's saving that for down the road. Okay, she does have a challenger, or actually more than one. Did she acknowledge that she has a Democratic challenger? Yes, she did quite often, and I wrote the name down here so I wouldn't forget. Um, and I'm looking at it here, Joe Biden. That's uh, she's running against a Joe Biden. <laughs> Uh, and she said that name over <laughs> and over. And oh, I'm sorry. Hold on. Uh, I'm being told Joe Biden is not her opponent. He is, in fact, the president of the United States. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I just imagine you holding your ear while you made that. Joke. <laughs> that's the end. I was a commit commitment to the bit. I know nobody can see it, but commitment to the bit. I actually, I absolutely was holding my ear. 
Um, so, so no, she did not mention Deidre Dejir's name, um, uh, the Democratic, likely Democratic candidate for governor. Uh, but uh, to fill out my uh, little fun times here, um, mentioned Joe Biden uh, on multiple occasions. So for now, anyways, she's running a very um, uh, nationalized campaign, you know, talking about the need for uh, conservatives to take the fight to the um, overreaching liberal democratic federal government that we heard much more about that than uh, uh, we heard about any of the opponents she'll actually be on the ballot against. So earlier in the day, uh, this year offered sort of a pre-buttal uh, to the governor's announcement. And what was her, um, you know, response to the, the governor's <laughs> announcement? I like that word, response. Um, yeah, you know, she she talked about a little bit about um, feeling some momentum in the campaign since the the turn of the year when, um, you know, the the. Um, campaign finance reports came out and, and showed how little that she had raised last year, especially compared to Reynolds and, and how little she had left. And that was kind of a, a cycle of, of um, unfortunate news for her campaign. But but since then, um, she, you know, she talked about the, the boost in, in support she's getting um, both from Iowa Democrats and, and in the fundraising. She got she was endorsed uh, that earlier that same day by Fred Hubble, which we suspect uh, will come with uh, not just a good old go get him pat on the back, but probably some of Fred Hubble's extensive resources as well. Um, he he put seven million of his own money into his campaign four years ago, so you would expect he'd um, uh, pony up a little bit to help Deidre here with that endorsement. So um, that was kind of the the the, the message that he was sent, she was sending that she feels her campaign is is now turning in the in the right direction and and then she talked about um which she has throughout this as um you know wanting to be a unifier and claiming that governor reynolds has governed in a way that has divided iowans that's kind of her one of her main themes anyways looking at poll numbers uh, governor reynolds might uh, wish she was running against joe biden um but the the one <laughs> registers iowa poll came out last weekend showing that reynolds has an 8 point lead over DeGier, which i think some surprised Many people. Um, did anybody at her at Reynolds campaign announcement seem concerned about those poll numbers? Um, no. And and first of all, let me circle back because you raise a good point about Biden. And that's probably why we heard her talking about making it sound like she's running against Joe Biden. Right. Because his poll numbers are so bad in Iowa. That's a, that's a nice, easy punching bag for her. Um, I, I didn't hear a lot of people talking about the gubernatorial Iowa poll numbers other than, uh, but I will say the one person I did talk to um, kind of made the same, had the same reaction that I've had since then, which is it it may seem surprising on its face, but on the other hand, when you think of where we are now politically and, and um, um, you know, the days of, uh, I I often say the days of Chuck Grassley winning races in the sixties and seventies are over now. It's just, it's, it's not that way anymore. Um, our, our, our two sides are, are, are very firmly entrenched. Um, you, you just put a candidate out there with an RRD and they're going to start at 35% baseline and, and, and only go up from there. So, um, so from that standpoint, th- those poll numbers 
aren't terribly surprising, but uh, but I didn't get a didn't sense a lot of nervousness in the room. If if that's uh, uh, maybe what folks are wondering, I mean, there's a lot of confidence in Governor Reynolds and um, in Republican circles, anyways, uh, about her prospects in this race. Of course, Republicans like to point out that in, in July of 2013, a Quinnipiac poll showed Terry Branstead uh, leading that race. Uh, 50 to 41, and he went on to win by 22 points. Um, uh, they hope that history repeats itself. Um, but that eight-point lead is about the same as President Donald Trump's margin here in 2020. Um, but Todd, doesn't that seem a rather slim lead in a in what's become a, a deep red state? Well, I I think as Aaron said, you know that the sides are divided. There were very few undecideds in that poll. So I guess the question for Dejir is, is that sort of her ceiling or is are there persuadable voters somewhere in that eight point margin that she could, uh, you know, that she could she could turn? Uh, I, I mean, that's eight points is, is a pretty healthy lead still. And so, uh, I mean, you know, she's in she's in better shape than, you know, when Tom Vilsack won the primary, he was down 20 points, basically the entire election cycle until like the last two weeks of October when he suddenly surged and won. So uh, she's not in that deep a hole. But yeah, I, I just I just don't know within that 51% for Reynolds, whether there are a lot of voters that can be persuaded to, to consider DeGere. I, th- I think, you know, as like I say, as Aaron said, we're pretty divided and, the, you know, the parties are in their trenches and I don't know that anyone's going to wander out into, <laughs> into no man's land to hear what the other side has to say. Given her recent, um, you know, national appearance, giving the Republican response to the State of the Union, um, the legislature approving her tax cuts and the ban on transgender females participating on girls and women's sports teams and her other priorities, do you think this is just a reflection of how polarizing Tim Reynolds is at the moment? Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of those. I mean, we've seen some Iowa polls this week. The, the, the transgender sports ban. Uh, Iowans are pretty evenly divided on that. I think it was forty-six in favor and forty-five percent against. Uh, you know, the tax cuts are a little more popular over the flat tax, but uh, people don't like the corporate tax cuts. So, I, I mean, a lot of these issues are. I mean, they're they're designed by design. They're des- you know they they're she's looking to uh, please her party's base, and I mean that's one of the reasons she's trying to nationalize the campaign too, because she knows that dislike for Biden and his policies nationally, you know, is is what makes animates her, you know, the Republican base. So, you know, I I, I think this stuff is you know divisive because. That's what, you know, that's what it's for. So, uh, but I mean, that's what we've seen. I, you know, we, but, you know, Donald Trump won by eight points here, as you mentioned, and, and his voters, you know, are definitely focused on these sort of national, national narratives. So Sarah, in six or seven months, when uh, our, our thoughts are turning to, you know, cyclones and Hawkeyes and, and, you know, the kids back in school and those sorts of things. Um, and, and these issues aren't fresh in people's minds and perhaps not in the headlines every day. Can, can Reynolds grow that eight point lead, um, you know, um, 
get you know up to that 22 point margin that Terry Branstead achieved? Yeah, I think it'll really depend on who wins the messaging campaign. If if people really hammer her and keep the the for example the transgender ban or those other polarizing issues in um, in front of voters and in front of the, um, in top of minds, um, you know that could maybe keep it keep it in front of voters. But you know if um, if that also gives the Reynolds campaign and Republicans plenty of time to uh, shape the narrative and kind of quiet those voices or um, try to try to become the dominant narrative as she's the incumbent um, governor. And as everyone's mentioned, um, her numbers right now are very polarizing. And um, and so it will be interesting to see if um, if she maintains that same polarization or um, especially if as people are um, as we're dealing more with the Ukraine crisis and uh, if inflation continues to rise and gas prices continue to rise and depending on how voters associate that with the Biden administration or if we continue to see this unity um, against Russia, I think that will also really play into whether uh, that um, national climate of uh, whether people are you know, associating some of the um, um, domestic economy with the Biden and Democrats and whether Kim Reynolds capitalizes on that or whether, um, you know, the the message still becomes, you know, Kim Reynolds is this really polarizing figure. And Amy, I think one of the things that surprised people was that Deidre Dejir, uh you know, had 43 percent support in this poll. She's, you know, We've been talking about she's virtually unknown. Uh, that seems high for an unknown candidate. Forty-three uh, percent. Uh, I, I would expect she feels pretty good about that at the moment. Yeah, and and I think Aaron was the one who said, you know, about thirty-five percent of people are just, or maybe it was Todd right now, just going to vote for either that D or that R on the ballot, right? I think Dejir, it, it's interesting, it might actually be higher because Dejir is right now, what, taking 43% in that uh, Mediacom Register Iowa poll. But 61% of the people who said that they would vote for Dejir also said they don't know her at all. So, I mean, that's a huge gap, right, that could make up for it. 96% of Republicans, I think it was, said that they were going to vote for Reynolds, but only 90% of Democrats did. I think that's really the ground that she can make up. I mean, we always talk about independence, and independents are definitely important. But I think you could really make up ground in your own party right now. If Dejir really makes that party circuit, which she has been doing um, as of late, not only can she raise those desperately needed funds that she's needing to raise, but she can definitely... Uh, raise those poll numbers and her visibility among Democrats, who are the exact people that are going to be the most excited to vote for in November. Still, whether it's a three percentage point uh, margin like 2018 or 30 points, it, it appears Reynolds is on the way to re-election with the Cook Political Report and Inside Elections calling Iowa solid Republican and 538.com calling Reynolds safe. Moving right along here, we've uh, reached or passed the midpoint of the legislative session scheduled for a hundred days. Um, budget subcommittees are starting to put numbers on their spreadsheets. The house Senate and governor all have proposed spending about $8.2 billion more or less far be it from the trifecta Republican control to agree on a number. Uh, Todd looking at the session, any surprises so far, or is the GOP sticking to its pre-session game plan? 
Well, you know, since they're usually reluctant to tell us what their pre-session game plan is, I can only guess that they're that they're probably sticking to it. Uh, I don't know. That, there have been some surprising issues, like I, the you know this this bill that would penalize landowners for selling land to the DNR county conservation boards. I don't. I didn't really anticipate that coming back so quickly. The, the same with the bill that would prohibit solar arrays on on productive farmland. I think those are some interesting issues. I, I I didn't know that Robbie Smith was going to propose to put, you know, 29 or 27 or how many boards and commissions that would no longer have to have Senate, Senate confirmation. That was kind of an interesting issue that seemed to come out of nowhere. Uh, so there's been, you know, a lot of those issues like that that have come up. I mean, I think we knew the, the transgender sports ban was was possibly on the agenda. We knew they wanted to cut taxes uh, on their way to eliminate the income tax. Although the REC or I mean the uh, the the revenue forecasting uh, panel showed yesterday that uh, you know things are okay now, but down the road when those tax cuts take effect, there's maybe it's going to be some budget issues, which I think is you know. One of the one of the things that happens and has happened before when you use surplus dollars to sort of underwrite a tax cut, those surplus dollars eventually go away and the federal government won't send us another how many ever five hundred and thirty eight million dollars or whatever the total is that, that sort of, you know, boosted the economy and helped that surplus grow. Uh, so, yeah, I. None of the things I I can't be surprised anymore because I mean over the last few years or the last five years of the trifecta, when you've got complete control, you really don't have to give anybody a heads up. It's a sort of you you pass what you want and and sometimes so quickly that it's uh, difficult to react. Aaron, uh, same question. Any surprises from the press bench or the Senate gallery? Uh, <laughs> um yeah I, i'm 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 with todd he, he stole the 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 main perspective <laughs> here which is that uh most of the big things um that they've been doing we knew about coming into the session um maybe just one or other thing to add on that i was surprised by was the um cameras in classrooms uh bill we, we knew they were coming after uh teachers uh, for school materials, um, but the to to the to the point of um, wanting to live stream instruction that that one was a surprise, and of course that one didn't even survive the first funnel, much less the second one that's coming up. So that's that's long since uh, dead. Um, so no, I I, I I guess maybe the other surprise would be uh, how quickly they appear to be moving, um, and 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 we may be headed for a pretty quick. Um, a session um, a little adjournment a little sooner than usual and and I need let's see I'm looking around the room I don't see any wood so I apologize if now if this thing goes in into June it's it's all my fault um, but but, but they, they've they, they've been moving fast and uh, already into the budget process which um, is ahead of schedule and 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 we could be done before those 100 days are up here. Um, uh, so that's maybe been a little bit surprising. Um, e e just even with the trifecta, a full Republican control, the, the, these sessions have not always run smoothly the last six years. So, so to be in one now where 
um, they really are steamrolling through things and already starting the budget process. And that should be relatively painless, um, you know, unless someone decides to drop a, you know, a poison pill into one of it and, and, and mucks the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's moving. Along. I mean, we we asked Pat Grassley yesterday, like I said, the second funnel's coming up and we asked him, so what are the big bills that uh, you, you're working on that you want to make sure get kept alive? And he I'm, I'm, I'm now paraphrasing here, but his answer was basically like, eh, we've, we've already done what we want to do. He, he couldn't think of a important bill off the top of his head that needed to be advanced. So, um, so there, so that's the biggest surprise for me, I think is the pace at which this thing is moving. And now when it falls apart, I'm just going to hate myself. <laughs> yeah. It, it's been interesting that usually it's the, those big, um, Bills that you expect to be very controversial are, you know, sit around until towards the end of the session, and, and they've dealt with a number of those early on. In fact, uh, uh, Representative Lee Hine um, of, of the Ways Chairs the Ways and Means Committee joked to me in February, uh, one day when the sun was shining in February, that, uh, you know, we must be close to adjournment. We're talking about tax cuts, and, and the sun is shining. You know, we're going to be out of here in no time. So <laughs> um, it, it, that it probably is the biggest surprise to me. So do you think um, Republicans want to get out there and get on the campaign trail, or do they stay in session so Democrats, uh, you know, legislators can't raise money during the session? So do they stay in session to keep the Democrats uh, from raising money? <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. Um the, the, from from as well as I know the Republicans that that we cover up at the state house as as much as they would love to be a thorn in Democrat side for any reason, I also can't see them wanting to stay in the legislature any longer than they have to <laughs> at the end for any reason. So, I, I as yeah. tempting as that may be, if they're close to being done, I think they'll want to wrap it up. Maybe they'll quit early and save the per diem. I don't th- has a legislature ever done that. <laughs> Quit before well, before it, the money <laughs> runs dry. I think I can remember one time uh, that they did that, and, and Democrats were in control. Um, so take from that what you <laughs> what you want. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, question for Amy, Sarah, and Jared here: How how is this session playing back home? I mean, I don't know if you're covering legislative forums on the weekends or just what you're hearing and seeing in letters to the editor and from candidates who are filing from office, but. What's the reaction, Amy? Um, how's this playing back in the Cedar Valley? I mean, it's about as bad as you would expect. But the <laughs> the good news for the mostly all Democratic uh, coalition in the Cedar Valley is they're starting to get angry, and anger is a really powerful emotion and, and tends to get voters to the polls. So that could be something that um, is you know sort of what's to come for the election. I mean, you had Roz Smith who. Uh, dropped out of the governor's race, but then also dropped out of um, trying to uh, contest one of his fellow legislators in redistricting. And now he's just sort of without a home, but going for these these Republican policies. He was at the the last DeGere event, you know, railing on it. But but he's sit- standing right next to, you know, a Bill Dotzler and, and Timmy Brown Powers and others who, you know, despite trying to like get their little bills in and, and sometimes succeeding are saying, Bill Dotson was like, it's like third grade stuff. I know you are, but what am I? He's been in there, you know, 26 years. Um, and he remembers leaders in the Republican Party that he said would work for you, would work with you. Now he said, it doesn't make any difference. They're, they're very entrenched down there. And so the only recourse they really have is to just call it out. Jared, Western Iowa, they're loving the Republicans' uh, legislative session. 
Um, well, uh, you mentioned filings, at least in terms of uh, filings, things uh, recently here a little bit um, light. Uh, this week for, for Woodbury County, the most pertinent election news was um, two different folks announcing for the uh, the county board race. And I should say that um, one of them who's running on the Democratic side, one of the things in her, um, her plank is uh, preventing uh, liquid pipelines in the uh, county, which is something that uh, one of the state senators from our coverage area, uh, Jeff Taylor, of course, proposed a bill that would have um, prevented private companies from using uh, eminent domain to build those uh, carbon pipelines. And um, that's something that at least among actual residents, um, that's an idea that has purchase. You can go to these um, pipeline meetings and you can find Democrats and Republicans who don't want these things. And um, as far as letters to the editor go, in terms of any one particular uh, topic that's like a localized topic and not just the um, national political controversy of the day, our paper has gotten a pretty steady uh, trickle of letters to the editor from people just asking, do we really need to be bowing down to these pipeline companies? And so that's been a type of letter we've been seeing for months now. And that's a thing I think that candidates maybe on both sides of the aisle could actually run on and uh, organize around in terms of, uh, you know, platforms and everything. Not not to send the, this in an entirely different direction, but one of the things that I found interesting about this session is you have that sentiment that you were talking about, Jared, people, property owners, really upset about the prospects of, of uh, private companies using eminent domain to put a pipeline through their land. At the same time, you've got uh, Republicans saying, you know, if you want to sell your land for conservation purposes, uh, no, 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 we're going to make you pay a penalty. You know, so it's, this whole property rights issue is sit out there. And I don't think either party really has, you know, the uh, um, a, a good position on it. I mean, I'm not sure that they are prepared to defend um, their positions on this. And, and I think that as we go forward, this is going to be an, an issue that will affect local races. I, I, I don't know if it'll really play much, um, you know, say in the governor's race, it might not be that big of an issue, but I think in legislative races, district by district, where those pipelines are proposed, uh, I, I, I think that's going to be a, an issue. Uh, and I don't know that either party is really prepared, uh, you know, to stake out a position on that. Um, we've, we've seen some, you know, people who are very anti-eminent domain sort of say, hands off this session, uh, you know, uh, we're not going to do anything this session. So, well, that'll be one to keep uh, an eye on, I think, as we go forward. Uh, Sarah, um, you know, how, how are the things look down in the Quad Cities area? Yeah, so the Quad Cities, um, and I recently started in this beat, but I've been reading uh, my colleague Tom Barton's um, coverage uh, of legislative forums. And um, one thing that was pretty consistent was that legislative forums that uh, lawmakers who proposed some of these bills um, related to schools um, really got an earful from teachers and parents, um, uh, some who are opposed and some who are for. But um, in DeWitt nearby, there's um, a Republican Norlin Mumson, who introduced the 
bill to um, that would put cameras in schools, which died. And at um, at a legislative forum, um, a fellow Republican, um, Gary Moore from Bettendorf, who um, who I believe chairs the Appropriations Committee, um, he actually called he he got they got an earful from teachers, and um, Gary Moore actually called the the bill clownish and said. Like, don't don't worry about, you know, clowns that uh, that introduced this type of stuff. And Norlin Mumpson was sitting like right next to him. So um, <laughs> it seemed to create an awkward uh, an, a little bit of an awkward moment. But, um, it definitely showed the difference between, you know, um, Gary Morris focused on seems to be focused more on the budget and the tax cuts and um, those more tr- uh, traditional Republican priorities, whereas then Norlin Mumpson's colleague was focused more on the, um, this uh, social conservative, you know, putting bill or putting cameras in schools and stuff. So so I thought I thought that was really an interesting interaction. Speaking speaking of the social conservative agenda, Jared, I, I'm not really sure where to start with this uh, uh, constitutional sheriff issue. Uh, until I saw your story, I really had never heard of that. Uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if I understand this correctly, the, the constitutional sheriff movement basically holds that the federal and state governments are subordinate to county sheriffs. No, that's a, that's, that's a, uh, that's, that's a good, uh, uh, Cliff's notes of it basically. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, where does this idea come from? And I mean, what, uh, who knew? that county sheriffs ruled supreme? Well, um, folks who were really gung-ho about this kind of stuff, they would say that those beliefs are right there in the literal text of the the Constitution, or they would say it goes even further back in political documents to like the the Magna Carta uh, from the 1200s in England. Um, Chris Ann Hall, who's a, a constitutional attorney, she's actually being hosted by the sheriff here, uh, in Woodbury County this weekend. She's talked about that, that um, this sort of uh, stuff has roots uh, back to, you know, the foundational documents of Western democracy. But in practice, a lot of this really crystallized in the, the 2010s around people like uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio in uh, Arizona. And at the time, um, folks like him and, and other sheriffs for other counties were sort of specifically banding together to take a stand against any federal gun laws that might start coming to pass, especially after uh, Sandy Hook. And their, their fear there uh, at the county sheriff level was that the federal government was going to come in and take arms away from private citizens. And of course, you know, Arpaio, who called himself a constitutional sheriff even, uh, he once bragged about running a tent city jail, like a concentration camp. And then uh, Sheriff David Clark um, from uh, Wisconsin, another person who uh, styled himself uh, as a uh, constitutional sheriff. He had uh, abuse uh, controversies that included chaining up pregnant women and having a newborn die in a jail. Uh, So the folks that are sort of at the forefront of the uh, constitutional sheriff movement are folks with a lot of pretty big and uh, sizable controversies in the, the not so distant past. And this is a thing that has started to pop up more here uh, in Iowa. Like I said, there's going to be a thing here on on Saturday from a constitutional attorney from Florida, Chris Ann Hall. Um, But uh, there have been similar events talking about constitutional sheriffs sort of throughout the state in a number of different uh, counties now. So if I understand correctly, the Woodbury County Sheriff is on board with this. 
how does this how does this affect the way he runs his department and enforces the law? So he he hasn't uh, clearly uh, laid out beliefs that necessarily you could point to and say this is uh, he's a constitutional um, sheriff. What he has said when it comes to this event that's coming up on Saturday with someone who whose beliefs do more cleanly line up with with constitutional sheriffs is just that th- this is someone um, that he saw speak um, at uh more state events for sheriffs throughout Iowa, um, give kind of training to police officers and everything like that. Um, so that's sort of the way that this has been described um, for folks who are uh, more than a little bit concerned about it. But in other areas, it has been more like explicitly about some of the stuff, whether it's it's guns or other issues like that. So in other parts of the state that I've seen, it it's a little more clear what this is actually getting on about. One of those areas, uh, Amy, was Bramer County, up in your neck of the woods, um, where folks have asked this um, super board of supervisors to declare a constitutional county. Is, is this really closely aligned with the the sanctuary county uh, philosophy for you know that really relates directly to guns and the not enforcing any federal uh, gun laws? Right. And and that part is more popular. So that part was actually um, what Bremer County residents were interested in um, when they were told about the entirety of the, the constitutional county idea. Um, they were not in favor. In fact, the Board of Supervisors said like 100 percent of the calls he had gotten about constitutional county were like against it. And Bremer County is not like a super liberal county. They they definitely uh, skew red. So so that was interesting. Um, but people were interested in the Second Amendment part, which is just basically from their understanding is um, the sheriff has the power to decide what gun laws are enforced or not. And and presumably that sheriff will, you know, be on the side of, of second amendment gun enthusiasts. Um, so, so that basically means that if the federal government or the state government, you know, were to try to uh, put a new law into place or, or something of that nature, then, then the constitutional, you know, County idea would, would come into play at that point. Um, this was also tried the Second Amendment part only was was tried briefly in Black Hawk County, um, which uh, has one out of five Republicans in the uh, uh, supervisors board um, and was pretty quickly shot down there, too. So. So, yeah, it's it's not getting as much traction here. Todd, is this uh, sort of like, um, you know, the cycle, uh, you know, in the past, it was the posse comitatus uh, movement, uh, you know, said the county sheriff basically could uh conscript any able-bodied person to assist in keeping the peace. And I mean, it seems like in the late nineties, um, I seem to recall that there was a lot of folks talking about posse comitatus. Um, I mean, is this just sort of the modern version? Well, I think these folks probably have more in common with like a anti-government militia group, maybe such as the uh, oath keepers or, or folks like that. I, you know, it's, I guess what's different is that, you know, in the past, these were sort of considered kind of fringe viewpoints. And now, you know, with the Trump years, things have changed and some of this stuff has gone a lot more mainstream. And, you know, there's this idea among among those folks on the on the far right that, the, you know, there's a radical socialist agenda to end all our freedom and and monitor us through vaccines and all of this other stuff. So this is an out, outgrowth of that. And, you know, the I, I'm sure 
they, you know, they like the idea that the, the sheriff is the last word on whether a law is constitutional, but I don't, I don't think that's actually real. So, uh, but it's, as you say, it's, it's popping up across the country and uh, it's, it's uh, kind of ridiculous and also could be dangerous as we've seen, as, as you know, we talked about the, the uh, excesses of some of these folks that are, uh, consider themselves constitutional sheriffs. I have a question about the enforcement side. Like, do you, are you expecting that this is going to be enforced at the county level and that you will be able to outnumber like uh, federal or state troops that would come in? <laughs> really ask it. Well, I mean, to, to that point, you know, some, some of the other uh, roots of this and some of the uh, kindred spirits with this were the, uh, the Bundy folks in the 2010s, which was very much about keeping explicitly the federal government uh, out in like a, a violent uh, back and forth. So at, at least the people on the furthest fringes of this like viewpoint, they definitely think that um, if it needs to come to uh, an actual standoff with uh, federal law enforcement officers, that they're ready to take up that uh, stand. Well, you'll want to keep that in mind uh, when you vote for sheriff this fall. Uh, you know, is this somebody you want to put in control <laughs> of your entire life and, and livelihood um, or just somebody to, um, you know, keep the peace? Yeah, well, so um, can, you know, what are you going to do as as president, Supreme Court, governor and <laughs> lower courts? And, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot of hats, Sheriff. What, what are all those for? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Most of the sheriffs I know, I don't think want to wear all those hats, but uh, maybe there are some who do. (laughs) Well, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. If you enjoy the podcast, tell your friends and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Fan mail may be sent to podcast at thegazette.com. Stay up to date on Iowa Legislature by subscribing to the Capital Digest newsletter under the Iowa Legislature tab at thegazette.com. And don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Craig Erickson will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our podcast, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Amy, Aaron, Todd, Sarah, Jared, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Be well.
our situation Sometimes it takes a little bit of help Find a new design My divine intervention Before they ring that midnight bell Well, I need a little water My good cow thirsty down here So give me some water For my soul I need a little water Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.